You are listening to Mommying While Muslim podcast, where hosts Uzma and Zeba share their personal stories of mommying in a post 9-11 world. This podcast is designed with the Muslim American mom in mind, so grab a cup of coffee and pull up to their table. Assalamualaikum, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Mommy Well Muslim Podcast. This is Usma Jafri. And this is Zeba Hassan. And I am very excited about our candid conversation today. Why? Because it is the Monday before the election, at least depending. Obviously, the election would have already, your local elections would have already happened by the time you listen to this when this drops. But with everything going on right now and kind of the the feeling of people being a little bit disenfranchised, what are you hearing in your local communities, Uzma, about voting or voting in general? Because I'm, I'm feeling like a lot of people are saying, I'm not going to vote because I'm just annoyed. What are your thoughts on all of that? And what do you feel is like the importance of, of, of voting in your local elections? So I agree we're hearing a lot of the no voting stuff, um, and that's more in regards to the um, national yeah, next year in November, and I'm just going to put it out there. I put it in my stories, and I'm putting it out there. All of our listeners <laughs> are going to be writing in for president in 2024. We, all, we are all writing in Linda Sarsour, every single one of us. Whether she wants to do it or not, we are going to get her kicking and screaming into the White House to start affecting change. Sorry, Linda. It's like we're, we can't think of anybody else who could do this. So you're just going to have to be president. Suck it up, buttercup. Um, and if anybody wants to let her know, because you know her, just tell her that this is the message that we're going to be promoting. As far as local elections, um, we have a lot of like bills pending for school funding. Yes. So that's really important right now. And that's why I will be dropping off my ballot next week um, in the little box because school costs money. And if we don't raise our taxes to cover that educational cost, then the schools won't have money. And then we'll complain that our kids aren't getting a good education and they're not getting a good education because we didn't invest. And we didn't invest because, you know, I already pay so many, much ta- so many taxes, but stuff costs. And, you know, I don't know about your schools in Virginia, but out here, because we are an open carry state, there's they're beefing up a lot of security. Mm-hmm. So there's metal detectors going up. The gates are being put up around the school. So basically, we're creating razas inside of our uh, neighborhood schools or of our neighborhood schools in order to, um, quote unquote, protect them. So we're not going to get rid of the guns, though. Um, and that's something that we can vote on for more, uh, other elections at different elections. So uh, I think local elections are just as important because this is the change you can immediately do. Like your city council members determine a lot of stuff, water usage, electrical usage, um, you know, how funds are distributed among schools. But, you know, I don't know what you're hearing in Virginia, because I know that you live in a very um, politically savvy community. What are they doing for their local elections and what are their thoughts on them? That's so funny. It's so, um, I know as I just said, you know, mommy, well, Muslim listeners, this is what we're going to do next year. Uh, I'm saying I appreciate that thought and effort, Ozma. However, I do feel collectively um, Muslims all over the world, all over the United States should be strategic in getting our our voices across for the national elections because we are a difference of 100,000 votes can really be the impact in some of these more battleground states, which do have a majority, which do have a lot of of Muslim um, voters. So I do feel that we um, as a Muslim community should actually come together and maybe spend the next uh, year in talking about a strategy. Maybe that's a collective strategy. 
strategy with a write-in vote of Linda Sarsour, but maybe it's something a little bit different. Um, we will we will work on that. And we'll keep giving you the news on that because I do feel like this next year, um, the one thing that I have um, felt with the, the Palestinian um, issue is that we can come together on something um, as a Muslim community. And that gives me a little bit of hope, even though it's under dire circumstances. But for um, local elections, to your point, it tends to have like a lower turnout. So like your voice, your vote actually matters more. Mm -hmm. And it really impacts your day to day. The national election, let's be honest, whether you're voting Republican or Democrat, they're pretty much two sides of the exact same coin, if we're actually honest with ourselves. Um, And even lack of voting is just voting kind of for the other. Unfortunately, this two-party system is just what it is. Um, But we're not going to change that in a year. But what we can do is do these micro things, and that happens on the state level. And so these state elections are actually, I would argue, more important than the national elections. So I would say just go and vote, get educated on the actual issues, see what those um, those memorandums, like all of them, what they actually mean, and then vote accordingly. Because to your point, point, our taxes are going directly to impact our day-to-day, whether that's to, through your schools, whether that's through your infrastructure. So let's get that done. But enough political talk right now. We're going to continue our, our series on moms who kick you know what um uh that a dollar sign dollar sign so we can't help (laughs) think that more than ever with the ongoing genocide in palestine we need mightier moms to help those in need um dr noor akras is an infectious disease pediatrician she is a mom of four so we have 12 kids here today amongst oh, sure. us. Um, and I guess we choose moms of four on pur- we purpose. We don't. Stop. I don't know. It's like a weird coincidence. Don't do that. Allah sends them to us this way, guys. We I'm promise. like, oh my God. Because we're like, we're, 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 we're impacting the world one child at a time. And the more yes. we have, the more we're taking over. So we are the pe- we are the right wings, Don't like worst nightmares. We're, our, we're their nice, their nightmares. But she has been on several medical missions in war-torn parts of the world, including the Middle East. Um, she works with MedGlobal. And once she did this while she was pregnant, oh my gosh, she's authored, recently authored a book called Just One, A Journey of Perseverance and Conviction, in which she outlines her experience growing up Muslim in the U.S. and what she experienced on her medical missions. We are in awe of Dr. Akras. Thank you so much here for being here today, and I can't wait to hear about your journey. Salaam Welcome, Noor. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Um, It's just so funny how this has come full circle. Like I was sharing with you guys earlier that um, I actually met my publisher after listening to a podcast one of your podcasts she was highlighted on your podcast and um, one of my former roommates had sent it to me so here we are full circle um, I love that about a year later Alhamdulillah that is that's totally we love hearing that yes it's been a pretty crappy month so to have like (laughs) enough hope for the week is really good so Jazakallah khair for that as you know, we like to kick off the podcast by asking a little bit about your momming story. That would be whatever you're comfortable sharing about your kids and your momming philosophy. Yeah, sure. So I have um, four kids. My oldest is uh, going to be 15 in a couple of weeks. And then Aww. my 13-year-old, she was the only girl. And then I have two other boys. Who oh, are three boys now. and a girl too. Yeah. This is like three chilies, right? We just got three Yeah. <laughs> yeah so um, I, 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 
yes, yeah, so I so I have four kids and I'm the lower done and um <laughs> my you know it's tough, right? Having mm-hmm. kids is tough. So once you're like on the other side of that, there's a little bit of a relief. Um so my my mommy philosophy, uh I, I have a couple. One of them is that uh we don't have control over who our children uh, turn out to be. And I think that's a really uh, important thing to to um, focus on because a lot of times either we want to take credit for who they turn out to yes. be or we are like really devastated. Um, and, you know, and there's examples in the in the Quran of both um, instances. So like if we think about the Prophet Nuh, his son never, you know, accepted uh, that God is one, et cetera. And then we think about Sayyidina Ibrahim, salam, whose, whose father was an idol worshiper. So just those two juxtapositions in the Quran teach us that we are not really in control of who they turn out to be. Um, that's up to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and themselves uh, and their choices. So it's really helpful to kind of take a step back and, and just let them, um, you know, make their decisions in life. And then secondly, um, another parenting philosophy is that we think that we we are the ones that take care of them, but in reality, it's Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala who takes care of them and you're just a vehicle. And so um, that's helpful when we think about our children driving, for example. Really <laughs> All sad, those like, scary yeah. things. <laughs> yeah, or even even for myself, like when I went on these journeys and thinking like, okay, what if I died on one of these missions and who will take care of my children? Um, but it's important to recognize that you know i'm not really taking care of them i mean i am the vehicle but almost kind of that is taking care of them and so if i were to die here or on a medical mission or anywhere else um then it's really allah who's taking care of them anyway so you know that that kind of helps relieve some stress and anxiety about um those issues um and i the third one and the final one is that our roles are as parents is to guide to teach to protect but that's it. You know, they're going to make their own decisions, and you ha- and they ha- and they have to, and we have to let them. And um, otherwise, they become resentful and other things. Um, and so, just kind of being able to take a step back and say, well, you know, this I'm teaching you this, um, and more importantly, not just telling you, but living the example that I wish that you would follow. So, um, you know, I don't. I will invite them to pray. I will tell them to pray, but more importantly than that is that they see me pray or yes. that they see me read Quran or they see me do other things. And so just living by example. And so those are my few parenting philosophies. Um, and they've been helpful to me along the way. No, Alhamdulillah, those are all awesome because I think all three of those, like maybe one of them, I figured out after about five or six years of parenting, like I was late to the game. I was like, what the hell? <laughs> this is taking so, why am I not getting this? Um, so through it's taken five years and later, a lot later even to learn all three of those things. But I think those are critical keys, tenets, I think of uh, Muslim moms that all Muslim moms should consider. And it's hard, you know, it is really hard because like the driving thing hit home because my son is all planning to drive to school next year. And I'm like, no, you're not like, no, I'm too scared. Like I'm fearful. And it's like, you know, he's like, I could die in my sleep, mom. We've known people who are young who didn't wake up again. You know, it's happened in our own family. So he's like, that could happen, you know, and then I'll never have had the chance to drive a car. And that's terrible because I'll curse you. So it's like, okay, so this helps me. So thank you. You have made a case for my son. He will be very, very grateful to you. Jazakallah khair for that. Um, You mentioned uh, going on these I mean, this whole episode is actually about your medical missions and um, your commitment to that. But tell us a little bit about your family background, because we suspect maybe that built up to the work that you do in the world. 
Yeah, so I'm a Syrian. I was born in Syria, and uh, my family moved here when I was four. Um, my dad actually sought asylum in the United States when I was three, and um, we were me, my mom, my sister um, stayed behind and you know trying to get here after him. Um, and so by the time that happened, it was like about a year later. Um, and uh, and so I grew up in Chicago. And um, I noticed the seven zero eight South Side Chicago. <laughs> That's right. And, uh, <laughs> I lived most of my life here, but I uh, did some training in Michigan and lived in Michigan for about three three years after I finished training. Um, and my husband is um, is from the South Asian community. He's Hyderabadi um, and also grew up in Chicago. <laughs> yeah, so well, Hyderabadi um, started in Chicago. Like that's yeah. where we land. <laughs> so um, yeah, so that's a little bit about my family background. I have uh, my. My dad's two brothers also uh, immigrated to the United States, so I grew up with a bunch of uh, cousins. And uh, but a lot of my family is still in Syria. I mean, some of them have left because of the war, and then some stayed behind. Yeah, you know, I'm absolutely fascinated um, by these medical missions. Like, obviously, both of you here are doctors, mashallah. And I always said, like, maybe I could play a doctor on TV just so I can go to these medical missions. Like, I feel like I can kind of help people if I really, really wanted to. But like, it takes a certain type of person, right, in order to, to like, like you said, put, to keep your kids behind, maybe go while you're pregnant, and you must really believe in the cause. Why? When did you first, like, what was your first mission and why did you actually start going to them given all the risks that are involved? Well, I think that it has to go back to, you know, I don't, I don't mention this in the book, but when I, when I reflect on how this happened, when I was 15, um, I, I used to, you know, this was before the internet and all these young people who don't know that life existed before the internet. I know. Yeah. Can you believe uh, that? Uh, I was, uh, I would, I would run downstairs every day, like around 6.50 a.m., turn on the coffee pot because me and my parents used to drink coffee. Yes, don't judge Aww. me. You know, I was drinking coffee. My sister was there too, but she didn't drink coffee. But so I turn on the coffee pot and I put my bowl of cereal and I would sit in front of the TV. I had to be there at 7 a.m. To, to hear the first part of the Today Show. So I don't know if either of you guys know the Today Show, but. Um, that's like a news show that in the first uh, two to three minutes, they would recap the 24 hour news cycle. And so because there was no social media where we were getting where we're getting every day bombarded with, you know, news, that was kind of it. So. So when I was 15 years old, the war in Bosnia broke out, yes. if you all remember. And I remember like watching in horror all of these images um, coming in from Bosnia. And they weren't obviously as graphic as what we're seeing today on mm-hmm. social media of images from Gaza because, um, you know, they had that because it's on national television had to be kind of, you know, less, less graphic. So, but even still, and I would be going to like fundraising dinners for Islamic Relief and all of these relief organizations. And I remember at 15, I, I always knew I would have wanted to be a doctor since like third or fourth grade. Oh, so you and Uzma, thinking, same. <laughs> I remember thinking to myself, like, if I were ever in a position to help in this kind of situation, I remember vowing to myself in front of God that I would do it. Oh. But I never knew that that my sincerity would be tested at, when I was a young mom. So I never, in my head, I thought, okay, someday I'll work for an NGO. And that was before I got married, before I had children. Um, but then once I had children, I kind of, you know, we all kind of mm-hmm. just get into that mode of, of, of raising children and working. Um, and so in September of 2011, uh, after the war in Syria had broken out, and it had been like a few months, 
I was actually in Chicago visiting my family. I was living in Ann Arbor, but I came to Chicago and I had two young kids at the time. They were ages almost one and almost three. And I was staying with my parents and uh, my cousin Suzanne had invited me over for an afflat. It was Ramadan. And so my mom, bless her, knowing that I was uh, raising two little kids, she's like, just go. I'll, I'll keep the kids. You go and enjoy yourself and socialize and see some people. So um, I left my kids and went to this afflat. And my cousin Suzanne is married to a, a, a pulmonary and critical care physician named Dr. Zahir Sahlul. And he was the head of Syrian Medical yeah. Society at the mm-hmm. time. So at this iflat, I'm like minding my own business, eating my knafa and having some coffee. And, you know, he's, he, he approaches me and says, like, you know, we make small talk. How are you? How's it going? What are you doing? What are you up to? And he says, I am I'm taking a group of physicians to the Syrian Turkish border to um, uh, to see the, the first wave of Syrian refugees. At that time, there was only 8000 Syrian mm-hmm. refugees. Today, there's over six million Syrian refugees uh, outside of Syria. And Syria is the largest uh, uh, the largest producer of refugees uh, in the in the world right now. There's also six million internally displaced, and that 12 million is half of the population of Syria. So he said, "We don't have a pediatrician, nor do we have a female physician. Would you be interested in going?" And so, you know, I never thought that that was going to be the topic of the conversation. And so, and in my head too, I'm like, "Well, you know, I have these two little kids, right?" And um, and then he and then I said, okay, well, I, I you know, I, I was just continuing the small talk, not thinking in my head that this was ever going to happen. So I'm like, oh, when are you guys going? And he goes, oh, in eight days. I'm like, okay, eight days. <laughs> Even better. <laughs> I know. And um, I'm like, well, I'm, I'm on the teaching service that week. So in a week, I was supposed to be on the teaching service. I was working at um, Wayne State. And, uh, and he's like, well, see. I'm like, okay, well, I'll see. Thinking in my head, no way, that's not happening. So, um, you know, I come back and then it was late that night. And so the next day I had called my, my husband and, uh, you know, we were talking and, you know, he's like, how's it going? Whatever. So anyways, I said that had is taking a, a medical mission group to, to, to the Syrian Turkish border. Um, and he invited me to come and thinking in my head, my husband would like laugh. And he's like, oh, you should go. Oh, like, <laughs> Yeah. And he's like, no, no, you should totally go. I'm like, do you remember that we have two little human beings that we're, he's like, oh my God, we'll figure it out. Like I'll, you know, your parents, my parents, I'll take off, whatever, like you should go. And that was kind of like, it was like totally in my face. Uh, And then I said, oh, I have, I'm I'm teaching on the teaching service. And he's like, email your boss. I bet you should let you go. I'm like, no, she's not going to let me go. And so then I emailed her too. And this, then I started putting a staccata about it because I was like, okay, my husband is my husband is just saying go. My parents were saying go. Um, and then I, I emailed my boss and she's like, go, we'll find somebody. We'll find somebody to take your position. Um, your work there is far more important. And Aww. so like everything was open and then it was just left up to me. And here's Allah Spantara like telling me, okay, you said you would go mm-hmm. if you could go. And here it is. So are you going to go? And so I went um, and, you know, and and it changed my life. I honestly like that trip changed my life. It changed the trajectory of my life. I I, I would not be the same person had I not like did that in 2011. So that was how I first started. That's incredible. Like it's always that serendipitous encounter. It's some serendipitous event that like drops you down the rabbit hole of rescue missions. Um, I, I like I'm having so many flashbacks to my own experience. It's so funny. Like you think that everybody's going to be against you, but it's like when Allah is with you, doesn't matter. And like you said, you pray istikhara and the 
path is just made easier and easier for you, subhanAllah. So I love that you had that experience. But, you know, as someone who's gone on a few missions myself, it's really hard to put into words what you experienced there. So I'm really fascinated that you were able to write a book about it. So what was that process like? And um, I guess, what were some of the challenges that you experienced while writing it? Um, well, you know, I had I had blogged a little bit about it because I just find writing very therapeutic um, and just to, to get it out there. And um, never in my wildest dreams did I ever think that I would become an author. Like I, that never crossed my radar at any time in my lifetime, honestly. Like oh. I knew I, wouldn't be, I was going to be a doctor, but not an author. Never, 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 never. So how that happened was um, after my medical mission to Yemen, um, I had a baby who, you know, the one that I was pregnant with when I went to Yemen. <laughs> um, and after I had him, uh, the pregnancy was super difficult. The delivery was difficult. Like the recovery was so hard. And it was very, it was still very cold in Chicago, even though he was born in April. Um, and I was suffering from postpartum blues bordering on depression. He was super colicky. And, you know, I had experienced having four other kids. And I was like, this, there's something wrong here. Like, I am not feeling well. Um, I'm not, I'm, I'm not, I can't get out of this funk. And so I told my husband, I'm like, you know, I'm not feeling good. I, I need to do something. I need to go somewhere sunny. I, I need a break. And, you know, him recognizing, like, I'm not this person that just like runs off on some lavish vacation. Um, and he's like, okay, what do you need? Like, what do you need me to do? And I said, I'm going to go to California. I, we, I have a friend in California named Hanan. I said, I'm going to go visit her for a couple of days. I'll take the baby, obviously, because I was still nursing. Um, but I just need some sun mountain ocean something like i can't i can't st stay cooped up in chicago in this cold weather and you know all this stuff so so he said okay so uh, i set out to to california and again like here's this you know you think it's serendipitous or you think it's a coincidence but it's like all this planning the whole way so and i'm out there in california my friend hanan introduces me to a yemeni american young man named Mukhtar Al so maybe you've heard of him he is uh, the subject of a book called the monk of mocha that was written by dave Eggers. So Muhtad was a law student and decided that it wasn't for him. And so somehow he ended up in the coffee entrepreneurship business and did like uh, all of these classes and coffee tasting and all this stuff. And so uh, because he's Yemeni, uh, he went back to Yemen to kind of look at coffee plantations and, 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 and coffee, I guess, originates from Yemen, which I didn't know. But anyway, so so she and my friend Hanan introduced me to him and we're talking and and somehow along the way, he goes, oh, I just recently had to hightail it out of Yemen because the war broke out. Mm -hmm. And he's like actually stuck there with the bombs. And actually, CNN um, CNN had interviewed him because he had to take a boat. And it was like a very perilous journey. And I was like, oh, I just had to hightail it out of Yemen, too. And so we were we exchanged Yemen stories. And then a year later, him and Dave Eggers show up in Chicago doing a book tour about the book that they had written. And Dave Eggers is a famous author. He's written about Katrina, the lost boys of Sudan, and some other, you know, issues, social issues. And so we, my husband and I went to this uh, book tour, and it was in downtown Chicago, some posh location. And all of these older white American people were at this event. And so here's Dave and Mukhtar, and Mukhtar is like, has a slideshow and he's showing all these slides of Yemen and Yemeni people and Yemeni culture and the war. Our sponsor this month is Guidance Residential 
who is also the sponsor of the 2023 Mass LA Convention this November 23rd through the 25th. With over 50 chapters nationwide, Mass, our Muslim American society, is a dynamic, charitable, religious, social, cultural, and educational organization dedicated to promoting Islamic knowledge, community service, youth programs, and civic engagement. Together, they strive to make a positive impact on society, and we would argue that both Guidance Residential and Mass do that. Register for the Mass Conference at M-A-S-L-A convention, all one word, dot org, and go stop by the guidance residential booth. And I'm like, oh my God, like if these people didn't come to this thing, I bet you they wouldn't be able to identify Yemen on the map. Mm-hmm. Okay, so it just brought home to me the power of storytelling and the humanization yes. that comes along with storytelling. I had read this book by Samantha Powers, who was the former U.S. ambassador to the United Nations when Barack Obama was in, 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 in the Oval Office. And she wrote a book called The Problem from Hell. And it talks about genocides and why, why the West or the U.S. in particular doesn't intervene in times of genocide. So very timely. Yes. Yeah. Anyways, We're so going to put that on our show notes for yeah, sure. Let me just click clap in. <laughs> yeah. So she argues in this book that if there's no... Uh, like economic gain or there's mm-hmm. no national security gain the west or the united states in particular does not get involved unless the average american cares if the average american doesn't care they don't care yes so uh so that was like one of the reasons why nothing happened in bosnia for example for mm-hmm. a long time um, and so in my head i'm like oh well maybe if i humanize the syrian refugee story someone will care so that was the impetus for me and i and i told my husband after that book uh, tour, I said, listen, I'm just maybe, maybe if I write something, and I thought I would write an essay. And so after the p- kids would go to sleep, this was in 2019, I would sit and just write, and I would write and write and write and write. And, write. and after like three months, it was a 50,000 word. It's a book. And my husband, <laughs> yeah, my husband's like, that's a book. And so I'm like, okay, I have no, like, I have no training in books, book writing. I have no idea how the publishing industry even works. Like, again, nothing, not, nothing on my radar. So I happened to be working with a woman who's a pediatric critical care physician at that time. And again, nothing serendipitous. She was just at our hospital for two years, and then she went on to somewhere else. And we, you know, we were talking, and she was writing a book about um, she had coded when she had her baby. So she was writing a book about how both sides of coding patients, how she, as a patient, like went into her cardiac arrest and had to be coded. And then how she codes patients. Anyways, so she introduced me to a uh, a course at Harvard for physicians who write books. And so I was like, okay, I'll go to that. So that was 2019. I went to it. And they teach you how to brand yourself, how to pitch. And I'm super introverted and shy. So it wasn't working very well for me. Um, but I learned some things uh, along that way. And so when I came home, I would uh, I'd, I'd refine my pitch and I would email agents like 20 at a time. Here's my book. Here's my proposal, this and that. And nobody would respond. I mean, some people would be like, no, thank you. But most people would be like, they wouldn't even respond. So then I'd be like, oh, my God, this is so dumb. I'm going to stick to my day, day job and my parenting and like, ignore this. And then something uh, something dramatic would happen in Syria, like a hospital would be bombed or mm-hmm. chemical weapons would be used or, you know, whatever, X, Y, and Z. So anytime something really awful, even though a lot of it was already so awful, but every time, you know, it would it would hit the news cycle. I'd be like, no, no, I gotta, I gotta publish this book. So then I'd go back to the drawing board and, and email like a number of agents, and then I would not, not get a response or no, thank you. And then I'd be like, this is dumb. And so I just kept going through the cycle like weeks or months. And then COVID hit, right? So 
you know, now we're March, 2020. And then I'm like, this is really dumb. I need to like make sure my family survives this pandemic. (laughs) And then I really like completely tabled this idea until 2020, the end of 2022. uh, And I think, again, there's no coincidences. And that's when the COVID restrictions started to ease up a little bit. Then I wrote a chapter about COVID and my experience as a peds infectious diseases physician, as an infectious diseases physician, and the time of COVID of a new path, a new pathogen, you know how the White House was responding, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So that's the last chapter of the book. It's about COVID. Um, and so in September of 2022, one of my former roommates had heard Jenna and your uh, podcast, and she forwarded me her information. And I listened to the podcast and I, I was like, whatever, she's probably not going to publish the book either. And I sent her my generic, you know, pitch. And within 12 hours, she's like, let's meet. And uh, so, so that's how that happened. And, yeah. you know, so we published the book and I've learned a lot about publishing and, and editing and marketing and all of this stuff uh, that I obviously would have never known about had I not published a book, but it's been a, you know, it, it's, it's been a, it's been a process. Like it's been difficult, you know, just uh, it, it's, it really humbles you. Um, and just, you know, opens your eyes that when Allah wants something to happen, it's going to happen on his time and when he wants it and it's all divinely planned. So just let go, and like keep going. You know what I'm saying? I go and let God, right? I, I absolutely yeah. love that. And, and, and I am going to take credit as men are going to take credit <laughs> as a way of getting your voice in the world because I love it. Whatever we can do to help be a catalyst, a movement for other women like yourself to get their their viewpoints across, I think is such a beautiful thing. And I am so excited and can't wait to read this. But, you know, part of the book, it sounds like was uh, the reasons why you're going into this, uh, your medical journey, all the things that you're you're trying to do. But I, I'd like to know as someone who hasn't gone on a medical mission, like what are some of your personal reasons? Like you sat there, obviously you're like, okay, I promise God, like uh, there was a journey, you had a personal connection to Syria, but you're sitting there and you're like, okay, I, I'm going to stay or I'm going to go. There had to have been like a personal like spark. What was that particular reason spark for you to go on that first mission? I mean, the spark for me is like, you know, with our zakah, like we have to pay our our two point five percent to to purify our zakah. Well, I feel like that that belongs to everything. So, like anything we have, that we have to give back a part of it, and that's our way to say to thank Allah Subhanahu wa Taala for yes. giving it to us. So, for me, that's my medical knowledge. Like, there's not been a time anybody has called me, especially COVID. I got so many questions during COVID. I'm sure. From people I didn't know, should we plan this wedding? Should we cancel this wedding? I've been exposed. I'm pregnant. I'm this. I'm that. And there's not one time that I've turned anybody away. Like That's I always blessing. answer uh, with as if like they're my own relatives, my own children. Um, I always answer with the best of my ability because Allah gave this to me. You know, this ability, this this uh, this mission, this ability to be a physician. Um, and I can't like, how do you, how do you face God saying like, well, I just used it for myself and I didn't help anybody else. And I just, you know, I became a millionaire. Although I'll, if you, if anybody doesn't know, there's no money in pediatrics and there's really no money in pediatric infectious diseases, but yes. anyways, <laughs> but just even let's pretend that there was, you know, like I just, I just saved that for myself and my children and I made sure me and my family were safe and I didn't care about anybody else, you know? So that's really, for me, that's the impetus, like. Like Allah gave me this and I have to share. Like, how can you not share it? How can you not 
how can you hold that back from other people? So that was the impetus in the first one. But um, the subsequent ones, like if you talk to, I'm sure, you know, Isma will probably agree to this. If you talk to anybody who's gone on a medical mission, there's something addicting about that, about that experience. Like it is the most gratifying spiritually, intellectually, on so many different levels. And I've really thought about this for a long time because, you know, I've done a lot of religious things. For example, like I've gone to Hajj several times. I've gone to religious, uh, like retreats month long. I've sat in Syria studying Quran for like 14 hours a day for six weeks at a time, which if you can imagine, that's a very spiritual experience. But this talks all of those. And so for a long time, I, you know, I've been thinking like, why is that? I wonder why that is like, why is that such, such a, this experience is like, it really gives you back more than you get. And if anybody's following, there's a, there's a physician in Gaza named Dr. Ghassan Abu Sida, and he's a London based reconstructive surgeon. Uh, and he's volunteering right now in Gaza with uh, MSF and just read, read some of his last posts. One of his last posts right now, recently, he's like, I'm at peace now. This is a guy who's sitting under bombs falling down. He's saying, I'm at peace now. Uh, I feel like I've come to the place where I've been traveling to my whole life. Oh. And I believe this is because you probably know this hadith Qudsi that we've all heard or at the age of whatever, that when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says on the day of judgment, oh, son of Adam, I was sick and you didn't visit me. Yes. What do you mean, oh Lord? Like, how could you get sick? How am I supposed to visit you? And Allah Subhanahu wa says, "So and so was sick. Had you visited him, you would have found me." And that found me. I think that's it. That's that's the reason. Like when you're with people who have lost everything, yeah, Allah's there taking care of them. Allah really is taking care of them, even though it looks like on the outside that they've lost everything. And if you're with them, then then you you feel that divine presence. And I think that's why these experiences are so addicting and people keep coming back to them. I love that. I have goosebumps, alhamdulillah. Like it's such a beautiful thing. And it's something for people to remember. Yeah. I have a friend who, you know, with the serendipitous events that happened where it was like Imana for me Mm -hmm. and I had unsubscribed to their email list when I was still in medical school. So I had promised Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, my, my daughter went through something that a lot of listeners know about. And when she was really sick, I was like, I know I forgot. I promised you that I would go serve humanity if you made me a doctor. And I became a mom first and I've just been doing all this other stuff. And I forgot my promise to you. I think you might be holding me to account. I'm sorry, astaghfirullah. If you heal my daughter, I will go. So three months after, or no, a month after she came home, um, I get the email from Imana in my inbox, not in my trash, in my inbox. Like, hey, we're going to, it was at the time Jordan, to go help Syrian refugees. And I was like, well, that's weird. And it was like, literally, I was sitting beside my husband. I was like, oh, there's this thing for a medical mission to uh, Jordan. And he was like, oh, you should go. Like, he, I don't even think he made eye contact. He's like, just very offhand, like, you should go. And I was like, what? And he was like, I would feel better if you went with this one um, community member. And that community member had been a refugee himself from Afghanistan. And like, literally had like cross borders barefoot kind of thing, you know, sat in trucks and all of that. So he'd experienced that 
experienced it as a child and said, yeah, you know, I've always wanted to give back in some way and I've always wanted to go and serve. I've never done it before. Sure. I'll go with your wife and I'll keep an eye on her and make sure she's safe. Cause at the time we thought like it was really dangerous. Like we'd be under bombardment. So nowhere near what Dr. Hassan is going through right now in Gaza. I've never been in, a, in that kind of dangerous situation. The closest I got was like actually seeing the fires on the other side of um, the Rohingya camp where people were still being burned. Um, but uh, to this day, he still goes on a mission almost every month or every other month. Cause oh, wow. it's like you said, it's this addictive thing. He's like, this is where I feel most at home. He would rather mm. not eat and mm. lives a very simple lifestyle, even though he himself also has four children, uh, three boys and a girl. I promise we're not doing this on purpose. <laughs> swear to God. Oh, I'm not doing this on purpose. So, but he's like, I don't find comfort anywhere else. And it's Aww. it's really, really difficult to describe, which is why I'm so shocked that a book is written about it. And I would love to read it. Um, and uh and just I guess reminisce, because it's been a while. I think 2019 was the last time I've gone. But um especially given what's going on right now, the circumstances that the world is in that Philistine mm-hmm. is experiencing right now, what would it take? Because medical missions sound so good. Like we're serving, you know, we're using our talents, but I want to imagine a world where medical missions aren't necessary anymore. What would it take? And you're an infectious disease specialist. I think you have, even though you don't have the wealth associated with like plastic surgeons and stuff, you have, I feel like the expertise and an insider's point of view and what it would take to not have to have medical missions anymore in this world? Like what kind of infrastructure do we need to have? What kind of mindset do we need to have as one humanity in order not to need doctors to go out and put these fires out? Yeah. I mean, even if we thought about like all the wars stopped, there's still natural disasters. hundred percent. You know, just thinking about health equity, um, this is why I really like Med Global so much, even though I'm, I'm no longer on their board. I started on their board for the first two years of their inception and then COVID hit. And I was like, okay, my kids are all at home. I need to take a, I need, <laughs> I need to do something else. Yeah. So, uh, but I, I still advocate for them. And then actually a portion of the proceeds from the book will go, goes to Med Global to support their mission. And so they talk a lot about health equity. And, you know, one of the shocking things for me too, was when I went to Yemen, um, they were not familiar with, uh, neonatal resuscitation. And that was like so shocking to me. It was 2017. Wow. And they, there were so many cases of cerebral palsy. So we talk about this a little bit in the book. But I was like, why, why do you guys have so much cerebral palsy? Like, I knew we had a selection bias because people were coming to the American doctors thinking we had some magic cure. But still, there was like so many. And so then I you know, was talking to the physicians and the health minister, and they would say like, uh, most women delivered at home, especially in that mm. city. Um, and the, the people who were tending to them were mid- midwives. And I'm like, okay, well, but what does the midwife do for the baby? And the health minister looked at me like I was an alien. He's like, what do you mean? I'm like, does the midwife know how to take care of babies? And then he's like, no, they just take care of the mother. And I'm like, well, what happens to the baby? Mm. Like, well, they just set them on the side. Like, oh, what? what? Like what? Like how? How is that even possible? It's 2017, and nobody's talking about neonatal resuscitation in this area. So, health equity. Like I, yeah. I feel that in the time of internet telehealth, there can be so much done across the world. Even if there were, even if we were able to stop all the wars, uh, to allow people to to kind of 
have the same access to healthcare. Like my child should not deserve more healthcare than a Yemeni child. Mm-hmm. Like, why is that fair? Or a child in Gaza or a child anywhere in the world. Um, and so just investing in teaching, um, which I, I appreciate about my global so much is that they, uh, it's not the savior complex that yes. used to be like, oh, we're here for two weeks. We're going to save you and just leave. No, it's it's investing in infrastructure, investing in health, the healthcare workers on the ground, teaching, um, and giving them the tools. Like uh, they have, they this last they just had a fundraising dinner uh, this weekend where they were raising money for point of care ultrasounds and um, using ultrasounds because you know a lot of these places don't have machines or CAT scans, um, but these point of care ultrasounds are helpful to identify um, like hemorrhages in the belly or in the in the lungs or air or you know just different uh, different um different diseases uh, or uh, especially like uh war trauma uh using ultrasounds and they can be connected to a phone and so you see the images on your smartphone wow. so you don't need this big huge machine um and so just leveling the playing field uh investing teaching uh, those are the things that would be necessary um to um to kind of be more uh, to give more access to health equity. I completely concur because I think my last mission was with MedGlobal and they had this whole program of training local Bengalis mm. um, and, you know, refugee Rohingya on how to provide health literacy because a lot of these people, you know, they spoke and they may if, even if, well, most of them were laborers or had farms, but they were completely illiterate. So these um, translators that they had trained came up with this whole pictorial system, code system to teach people like basic health stuff. And most importantly to me, how to take their medication properly. Mm. And they taught me, you know, cause I was like, why are you drying these pictures on top of the bags? Like, what are you doing? He's like, oh, this is so they know like in the morning they're taking two pills and this is the code for that. And it was, and this is what they're going to take at night. And this is what means afternoon. And I was like, this is incredible. Cause the health illiteracy, I think that's where a lot of the disparity is generated because the same investments that we make in health education, even like lay stuff, like even like WebMD, you know, that we have here mm-hmm. and we take for granted. I hate WebMD as a physician. I'm sure you mm-hmm. feel me on that one, but if that could go to the rest of the world, I feel like people would have at least something mm-hmm. that they don't already have. Cause it's like basic, basic things that they don't know, like simple stuff, like breastfeeding is not a contraceptive. Like that would be really important, but they have yeah. had 12 children thinking that breastfeeding is a contraceptive. It's, it's not working yeah. <laughs> after four kids, you know, it's not working. So that kind of stuff I've seen med global do firsthand. So it is a really good organization to get involved with. If anybody wants um, to know where to donate your money, the end of the year is coming. So you want to get all of your donations and med global would be great. And you can buy uh Noor's book. What is the title of the book again? Just one journey of perseverance and conviction. So you love can it. Get it on Amazon or through my website. And we're going to have that in the show notes so that people can click, uh, click directly on it. Um, and we'll put that in our social media because it's definitely something like you said, the storytelling is what I feel like really makes impact. And, and it's the small, co- in, in small connections that we can make that can help um, change somebody's mind. So I love and appreciate all the work that you have done, that Uzma has done for these people, for people like myself. Thank you so, so much. Yeah, let's keep our intentions pure. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing your work, your journey, your book with us. And, you know, we look forward to your next mission and hearing more about it and the next book that you write. 
because you're reading Abraham Varghese, right? So for, for time immemorial, doctors, once they retired, you know, they write books and they Mm -hmm. share their stories. And so I remember being five years old and my Khan, my um, mom's brother, he had said, you know, you're going to be a doctor, but like one day you need to know how to write these stories. Mm -hmm. So he gave Mm -hmm. me like my first giant box of like paper and like pens and stuff. And my first two books in my library, he gave me and was like, you need to to learn to write, you have to read. And then you'll Mm -hmm. go to medical school and be the doctor to get the content. So Keep collecting your stories. You've got great ones as an ID doctor and you'll write two, three, seven more books. You know, no big deal. Inshallah. Inshallah. Jazakallah for coming on and thank you everybody for listening. Salam alaikum. Salam alaikum. Thanks again for joining Zeba and Uzma Momming While Muslim today. Please email us your thoughts or questions and follow us on Facebook and Instagram because this podcast was designed to cater your needs. Make sure you check out the show notes to find the links and resources for this episode. And remember to help a mama out and leave a review of the show as well as to like it on your podcast app of choice because that helps us grow. Tune in next week for another episode of Mommy Wall Muslim. Assalamu alaikum, everyone. Thank you.